Good morning, church. This morning's reading is taken from Philippians 2, from verse 1 to 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the end, sorry, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Thank you very much indeed. Well, friends, do let's keep our Bibles open, as always, at that passage, one of the most wonderful passages, surely, in the New Testament. And uh, let's ask the Lord to minister to us in the next few minutes as we look at it together. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your precious word, which points us to your Son, For it is in Jesus that we find strength for the weak, compassion for the needy, and hope for the hurting. So please draw near to us by your Spirit and through your word that we might see Jesus and find all the help that we need. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, for the next few minutes, we're going to be conducting a delicate surgical procedure, spiritual brain surgery. Uh, We're going to have our spiritual cranial plates lifted up, and uh, a full examination is going to be conducted upon our minds. I should warn you up front, I think, that we're going to be doing this without a general anaesthetic. Uh, We do need you to be wide awake all the way through. 
Because, you see, it is the mind of the Christian that is actually the big idea running through the passage. Uh, It's perhaps not obvious in our NIV Bibles. Let me help you see it. Uh, Obviously, we find the word mind at the start of verse 2, where we're encouraged to be like-minded. Then we find it again at the end of verse 2, where Paul talks about being one in spirit and purpose. And I need to tell you that the word purpose is actually the same word, mind, in the original. Then in verse 5, we're told that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And the word attitude is yet again this word mind. It's actually a word that we find all over the place throughout the letter, uh, ten times in all. And that's because, of course, God wants to work on our minds. Now, I guess uh, perhaps one or two of you might be thinking, oh dear, that sounds frightfully academic. Um, How does that connect to the other spiritual organs which the Bible talks about? such as, for example, the soul, uh, or the heart, or the will. Why on earth do we need to consider the state of our minds this morning? Well, one reason is that the Bible uh, doesn't see the mind as being separate from everything else. Uh, If you're like me, you will have heard people from time to time talk about going to mind, body and spirit seminars uh, as if we're made up of three separate compartments. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible sees every human being as an undivided unit. And uh, in the Bible, the word mind is actually shorthand for the real you. Uh, It's the control system that governs all your decisions and behaviour. So whilst people can't read your mind, they can see what you do and what you're like, and that tells them quite a lot, actually, about your mind. And this morning, God wants to work on our mind. Because, you see, if we get our minds right, good behaviour will naturally follow. And the whole course and the shape of our lives will move in a direction that commends the gospel and points people to the Lord Jesus. So in our passage, there are two tremendous lessons that Paul wants to drum into us as part of this spiritual brain surgery. First of all, all Christians should have a gospel mindset. All Christians should have a gospel mindset. Why? Well, secondly, because Christ had a gospel mindset. So just those two points this morning. Number one, all Christians should have a gospel mindset. Look down with me, please, at verses one and two. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, 
if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Now what I want us to notice here is that Paul is addressing all Christians. Can you see there, he gives us this string, doesn't he, of four, if any, statements about their Christian life and their Christian experience. Just notice it with me. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any, comfort from his love, if any, fellowship with the Spirit, if any, tenderness and compassion. Now, the point here is not to cause them to become all inward-looking. He doesn't want them to spend hours uh, agonising over whether they've had enough of these experiences to qualify as real Christians. And he certainly doesn't want them to be comparing themselves with one another. Uh, He doesn't want them to be saying, well, I wonder if I have as much tenderness and compassion as Mariano or Ruby or whoever it is. That's not the point. The point is that if you're a Christian, if you are at all encouraged about your union with Christ, if you have any comfort at all from the love that he's lavished on you, if you have any sense of the Holy Spirit working in your life so that you're showing more tenderness and compassion today than you did before you were converted, if those things mean anything to you at all, well, have this gospel mindset. Now, that I think is both wonderfully inclusive and also wonderfully challenging at the same time. Because Paul is not here addressing a group of super-keen Christians. He's not saying, if you're absolutely fizzing with the joy of the gospel, or if you're totally bowled over with happiness at being united with Christ, or if you feel you've got loads and loads of tenderness and compassion to share with the people around you, I've got a word for you. He's not saying that. But he is saying if you've got the tiniest trace of encouragement from being a Christian, or just a tiny, tiny bit of tenderness, the smallest spark of comfort from the gospel, then, says Paul, I'm talking to you. So on the one hand, Paul is addressing all Christians inclusively. But that also means, I think, that his approach is very challenging. Because, and listen carefully to me here, there's no room for the the weary Christian, uh, the lukewarm, discouraged Christian, to sit back and say, well, I'm just going to listen in, because uh, Paul here is talking to the super-keen Christians, this is not for me. That's not it at all. The Lord has got something here to say to each one of us this morning. All Christians, without exception, should have a gospel mindset. So, what then is a gospel mindset? Well, it involves two key ingredients. 
First, it means adopting the same vision. And second, it means putting others first. So let's look at those two things together. Adopting the same vision, putting others first. Adopt the same vision. That's verse 2. Make my joy complete, says Paul, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now I'm sure you can see that this is building on what we learned last week about the importance of unity in the local church. Now that's the big idea here as well. Now why is that? Well, if you turn over to chapter 4 and verse 2, we read there, don't we, about some disunity in the life of the church at Philippi. Just have a look at it with me, chapter 4, verse 2. Apparently, two ladies in the fellowship weren't getting on very well with each other. And the apostle says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, who, by the way, I think is almost certainly Dr. Luke, the gospel writer, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life, Just notice there, will you, that these ladies have been contending with Paul in the cause of the gospel. Now that, I think, means that it's highly unlikely that their disagreement was theological. They wouldn't possibly have been doing ministry with the Apostle Paul unless they believed the same things about God and his gospel. No, it's much more likely that there'd been some kind of personality clash between them. In any event, both in chapter 4 and in chapter 2, Paul is urging gospel unity. Adopt the same vision. There's to be no party spirit in the local church. We don't want one group of people heading off in that direction and another group of people heading off in the other direction. No, we're all to be like-minded. Now, of course, their external circumstances will probably be very different. Uh, They may have different jobs and come from different cultures. They'll probably have different problems that they deal with during the week. And Paul's not really in in the business of trying to sort of blur those distinctions as if they don't exist. And he's not pressing for a kind of unrealistic uniformity in the church. No, on the outside, we will be different. But on the inside, we're to be of one mind. That's the point. We will have the same love for the Lord, the same love for one another, and the same love for the lost. On those things, if you want to put it this way, we will all have the same heartbeat. How do we achieve that? 
Well, in recent weeks, some of you probably know that people have been driving up the West Coast to look at the flowers that bloom at this time of year. Now, suppose you and your friend both love flowers. And suppose you drive up the West Coast together this afternoon to see a particularly rare and beautiful flower. When you get there, you bend down in order to admire it together. Now, what's happening? Well, your shared interest in this rare flower has brought you closer together. And in exactly the same way, as you and I look at the gospel that has saved us together, and we admire it, and as we consider the gospel partnership that we've been brought into together, what happens? We come closer to one another. So what perhaps did this look like in Philippi? Well, it must have meant that Lydia, the businesswoman, was looking closely at the Lord and his gospel. And at the same time, at the other end of the scale, the Philippian jailer and his wife were looking closer at the Lord and his gospel. And although they came from totally different ethnic groups and had completely different jobs, they're drawn closer together. Because having a gospel mindset means adopting the same vision. Now you see, as that happens, you quite naturally start to put other people first, verses 3 and 4. You see, the gospel mindset isn't something that just goes on inside us individually. No, it's about our relationships in the real world. It's about how you treat other people. So if verse 2 is a call to unity, verses 3 and 4 are a call to humility. Look down at verse 3 and 4 with me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the Apostle Paul is a brilliant, brilliant teacher. Because you'll notice he gives us two sets of negatives. Don't do this. Don't look out for that. And then he gives us two sets of positives. Instead, do this. Look out for that. Now, you see, he could have just given us two positive commands. But, you see, he knows human nature so well that that won't be enough. We also need to know what we are not to be doing. So what are we not to do? We're not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And... Don't look out only for your own interests. So we're not to be selfish. That, I think, is an issue that's been very much on Paul's radar screen throughout the letter. Glance back for a moment to chapter 1, verse 17. 
In chapter 1, verse 17, he was talking there, wasn't he, about the rival preachers who were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. It's the same phrase we've got in our text in chapter 2. It seems they were trying to get the better of the Apostle Paul while he was locked up and couldn't do anything about it. So, if in chapter 2 we're not to act out of selfish ambition, only looking out for number 1, what are we to do? End of verse 3. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. And verse 4. Look out for the interests of others. Now, follow me closely here because I want you to see how this happens. It begins in the mind. Consider, he says in verse 3. Can you see that in your Bible? Consider. Now that is something that we do in our mind. And obviously looking out for the interests of others, that obviously starts in the mind too. And there's no kind of get out clause for anybody here. There's no room for anybody to say, well, it's all very well for you, Paul. Uh, You're tremendously good at getting on with people, but I'm not. I can't do this. And by the way, you should see how these people treat me and what they're like, what they say about me. I simply can't get on with them. Paul says, no, no, there are no exceptions. This applies to you as much as it applies to everyone else. You might find that person extremely difficult to get on with. You might not click with them naturally. But in order to get on with them better in practice, you need to start by considering them better than yourself in your mind. Now a little bit later in the letter in chapter 2... Paul explains that Timothy is rather good at this, chapter 2, verse 20 and following. We're told there that Timothy takes a genuine interest in the Philippians' welfare. But you see, all Christians, says Paul, are to adopt the same vision, putting others first, because all Christians are to have a gospel mindset. Now, I know you're probably sitting there thinking, well, this isn't a very difficult argument. Uh, The logic is pretty easy. But, of course, it's much harder, isn't it, to actually put it into practice? Certainly how it is for me, and I'm sure it's how it is for you too. It's often really hard, isn't it, to put the interests of other people before my own. I mean, I love the idea on paper. But the practice is not always quite so straightforward. And indeed, on our bad days, it almost seems irresponsible. No doubt we're all much more self-focused than any of us would care to admit. But still, the idea of me demoting, as it were, a personal priority that I've got, in order to make room for a shared vision for the Lord and his gospel... If we're honest, that could actually feel like I'm losing a little bit of me. Do you know what I mean? So let's put our doubts about this under the microscope for a moment. 
and ask, well, is actually adopting the same vision really losing the better part of me? Does it really mean having to have the same tastes, for example, in in music or in, in sport or in food or whatever it is, so that we all look the same? Now, of course, it doesn't mean that. Uh, That actually sounds a bit more like a cult than a church. We're not all the same on the outside, and God doesn't want that. But we are to be the same on the inside. we, We are to have the same mindset. And our shared vision is not a kind of watered-down, second-rate version of the life that I used to have before I became a Christian. It's actually the best version of life imaginable because it satisfies our greatest longings and our deepest needs. So adopting a shared vision, a shared vision of gospel priorities, is a precious, life-enriching thing for us to be doing. And is putting others first really so very irresponsible? I guess someone might be thinking, well, if I do that, how can I actually be sure that my needs are going to be met? To which Paul would say, that's where other people come in. Because, you see, either we decide that we're going to live in a bubble where each of us does our own thing, providing for ourselves on our own, looking out for number one, Or we decide to live in a world where I put you first and you put me first. And if we start doing that, well, surprise, surprise, we find that our deepest needs are met. So, for example, as I give up an evening to help you with something, so you give up an afternoon to help me. Is that really, in the end, so very costly? Or as I open my home to offer hospitality to you, so you open up your home to offer hospitality to me. Now, in that scenario, are you actually losing out? No, nobody's getting shortchanged. And our deepest relational needs are being met. And in the process, it's actually teaching us a very, very important lesson, which is that no one is the master of their own destiny. don't know whether you agree with me, but I think many people today think that they can survive perfectly well on their own without anybody else. But you see, when we take this teaching to heart, that we're not to live exclusively for ourselves but for others, it's actually teaching us that if we're going to be saved... Someone else has got to do it. It makes us think of the one who more than anybody else did not look out for his own interests, but for the interests of others. And that brings us to the second lesson that we learned from our passage this morning. Lesson number one, all Christians should have a gospel mindset. Why is that? Because secondly... Christ himself had a gospel mindset. Verses 5 to 11. Just look at these marvellous verses again with me in your Bible, would you? Verse 5. 
Paul says, your attitude, your mind, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, dear friends, those seven verses are crowned with some of the most wonderful truth in the entire New Testament. But uh, instead of it being written out like a a doctrinal statement or, or a statement of faith, it's a poem. I think quite a nice way to think of it, think of it is as the first century equivalent of the hymn in Christ alone. There's some discussion about whether Paul wrote it or whether he borrowed it from someone else, but the authorship isn't the issue. It's the content that matters. Because here, Paul is putting before us, in the most memorable way, I think, four key aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So first of all, there's his eternal deity. Second, there is his selfless service. Third, there is his voluntary sacrifice. And fourth, there is his glorious vindication. Let's look very briefly at each of these in turn. First, his eternal deity. Verse 6, who being in very nature God? Now that's answering the question, what are you and I to think about Jesus before his incarnation? And Paul answers the question very simply, he was God. Before he was born as a baby and given the human name Jesus, he was in very nature God. And uh, the original uh, says there that he was in the form of God. That doesn't mean that he had the same shape as God, because of course God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical shape. No, it's to do with him actually being God. Now, of course, we know, don't we, that no one is more powerful or greater than God. So what did Jesus do with his all-powerful, great divine nature? End of verse 6. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Literally, the phrase means he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So we've seen his eternal deity, and verses 6 and 7 speak about his selfless service. 
And we need to be very careful to understand exactly what Paul is saying about Jesus here. One writer puts it like this. He says, this does not mean that he exchanged the nature or the form of God for the nature or the form of a servant. It means, listen to this, he displayed the nature of God in the nature of a servant. In other words, when he was born as a baby, he didn't give up his divine nature or his divine attributes. But instead of grasping hold of his rights as someone equal to God, he gave up not his deity, not his godness, but the acclaim, the honour, the dignity that his deity deserved. So that when he became a human being, he didn't appear as a powerful emperor or a political leader or as a flashy celebrity. No, he came in the form of a servant. Literally, in the original, he came in the form of a slave. Now just think about that with me for a moment. When the eternal, everlasting God came into our world as a human being, he joined the lowest class, the most despised group, As a Roman colony, of course, Philippi knew all about slavery. And the Philippian church knew all about it too. In fact, we're told in Acts 16 that one of the first converts was a slave girl who'd been horribly exploited by her owners in the most dehumanizing way. So when they heard the word slave, they naturally thought of humiliation, A person with no rights, no dignity, no freedom. And friends, that was the status that God chose for himself when he entered our world as a human being. By trade, he was a carpenter, living out the first 30 years of his life in complete obscurity in Nazareth. A kind of one-horse town that most Jews would avoid like the plague. So try to imagine for a moment what it was like for him to leave the glories of heaven and uh, to go, as it were, undercover for 30 years. In that time, nobody had the faintest idea who he was. And when he did eventually go public, he was rejected because he came not to be served, but to serve. And you know, as I reflect on this, I think the thing that stands out for me more than anything else is the reason that Jesus did this. You see, the sense of verse 6 is that Jesus did this not in spite of being in very nature God, but precisely because he was in very nature God. Now think about that, because it means, you see, that this wonderful hymn of praise, which reveals what Jesus is like, is actually revealing what God himself is like. That almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is at heart a servant. 
You know, the gods of the nations would never in a million years stoop to something like this. But in the words of the famous Christian chorus, this is our God, the servant king. So Paul gives us his eternal deity and his selfless service. And then in verse 8 we see his voluntary sacrifice. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that means, you see, that he wasn't forced into it. It wasn't imposed on him. And it it wasn't, as some foolish commentators have suggested, it wasn't an act of cosmic child abuse by his vengeful father. No, it was a willing, voluntary, costly laying down of his life. Willingly obeying the Father's will. Willingly taking the punishment for our sin. And taking the curse on all sinners pronounced by God in Genesis chapter 3. Now I know that many of your non-Christian friends and many of my non-Christian friends find this idea completely repulsive. The idea that God would need a voluntary sacrifice in order to forgive us. Because what many of them will say is this is barbaric. I mean, why can't God just kind of sweep our sins under the carpet, forget about it and move on? I think that Tim Keller has shown that forgiveness always requires costly, voluntary sacrifice. I don't know whether you have his book, The Reason for God. It's a good one to have on your bookshelf. In it, he says this, quote, this appears on the screen, yeah. If someone has wronged you, Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to with your whole being is agony. It's a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation and opportunity for when you were wronged, but you now forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are, in effect, absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly, and many people would say it feels like a kind of death. That's rather good, isn't it? And I think he's absolutely right. So, for example, think about it. When the cheated wife uh, accepts her adulterous husband back into the family home, it requires, doesn't it, costly, voluntary sacrifice on her part. When the victim grants forgiveness to the person who stole something precious from him, it requires costly, voluntary sacrifice. Someone has always got to pay. And when God offers forgiveness to those who've rejected him, 
It requires the costly, voluntary sacrifice of God himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, in order to absorb the debt. And friends, that you see is the lavish, wonderful gospel mindset of Jesus Christ. Eternal deity, selfless service, voluntary sacrifice, to which God the Father's glorious response is the vindication described in verses 9 to 11. You see, the sacrifice had a purpose. It accomplished everything he'd planned because it exhausted all of God's wrath for our sin. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you'll notice that we kind of hopped over the resurrection here because Paul has pressed the fast-forward button and gone straight to the ascension and the exaltation of Christ to the highest place as king of the world. And you see, if today people are still taking his name in vain and mocking him, and yes, they are, if not by their words... Well, then, certainly by their lives. One day, every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here's the question. What is so special about his name? Well, think for a moment about the names of God. For an Old Testament Jew, the one name that they would never, never speak out loud and which they refused to write out in full was the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the name by which God revealed himself to his people at Mount Sinai, and the name that actually most closely identifies him as Saviour and Redeemer. Now here, in our passage, Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45, and I think it will help us if as we close you turn there with me. Isaiah 45, verse 22. And the reason that we're turning there is because this is actually one of the most important monotheistic statements about God in the Old Testament. Monotheistic, there is only one God. This is one of the most important monotheistic statements about God in the Bible. Isaiah 45, verse 22 Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me Every tongue will swear. Can you see what's happening? In Isaiah, the Lord declares his name Yahweh and says that before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. 
And the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, it's Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the God who invites people to turn to him and be saved from all four corners of the earth. That's who Jesus is. And yet this great God has a gospel mindset of selfless service and costly voluntary sacrifice. So friends, if Christ had a gospel mindset, shouldn't we also have a gospel mindset? How is your mind this morning? Not your intellect, no. How is the real you, the inside you, how's that doing? Do you have a gospel mindset? Have you adopted the same vision as your brothers and sisters here at St. Barnabas? Do you have the same love for the Lord, for his people, and for the lost? And are you in the business of putting other people first? Let's be quiet for a moment and consider how we're doing with that individually, and uh, then I'll pray for us. Let's be quiet. Lord Jesus, it shames us to admit that too often we think we have a pretty good gospel mindset. And yet when we measure ourselves against you, we see there's so much more to do, so much more to grow. We praise you for your glorious example, coming into our world and serving selflessly submitting to a voluntary, costly sacrifice on the cross and putting others first. Lord, we thank you so much. And we thank you that your great substitution for us pays for our sins and all the many times when we put ourselves before others. Please give us grace to imitate your sacrifice and your servant heart as we seek to trust you and hold out the gospel to a lost and a dying world. In your great name we pray.